0: Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, October 14th, 2020. I'm Fraser Cain, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about Pluto's snow-capped mountains, um, black holes making complex gravitational wave chirps as they merge, and alien planets that could have more diversity than Earth itself. Joining me this week on my screen, I've got Dr. Brian Koberlin. Brian. Hi, everybody. Hey. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Um, we've got Beth Johnson. Beth. Hello. Yay. Um, and we've got uh, Moya McTeer. Moya. Hey, everyone. Good to be here. It's been like three Moyas in like a month, six weeks, yeah. maybe four weeks. I don't know. Weekly
1: Space Hangout has been very Moya-dense.
0: It's good. It's good. Yeah, we get all, yeah. all Moya all the time. We can handle it. No
2: one, No one is objecting.
0: No one is objecting. Yeah. Um, All right, so before we get into the guests, I just want to take a moment and have a huge thank you and an invitation to all of you to join the incredible community that surrounds this show, the Weekly Space Hangout Crew. They're the ones that are chatting in the chat. They are super active on the Discord server. They are, I guess maybe it's the CosmoQuest Quest Discord server. Anyway, um, and they are really the executive producers of the show. Again, we are going to be uh, discussing some mind bending, incredible topics today with some guests who are working at the forefront of this, uh, type of astronomy. And I had nothing to do with it, that they were, uh, they were invited to the show. And that was because, um, one of the executive producers for the weekly space hangout crew. So if you want to help make the show that you watch, this is the way you do it. So go to wshcrew.space. crew dot space. They'll hook you up with all of the uh, credentials that you require, the business cards, and really the self-confidence to call all of these uh, astronomers and and, uh, and astronauts and invite them on the show. So WSHCrew.Space. All right. Let's get into our special guest. And we've got two guests this week. So I'm going to start with, uh, we've got Jane Huang and uh, Jonathan Williams. Welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout. Hello,
3: everyone.
0: How's it going? So so, wait, where are you? Uh, so Jonathan, where are you located? I am in
4: Kaneohe, Hawaii. Nice. Uh, on the island of Oahu. Oh, that's great. And I work at the University
0: of Hawaii. Now that's not your actual background. I can see you're, you know, you're, <laughs> you're getting absorbed into the background it's, a little bit. So.
4: Oh, okay. This, this is Kaneohe, though. This is, Kaneohe is a sort of hidden gem in Oahu. So it's uh, on the other side of the island. It's very, very pretty place.
0: Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So that is what you would see if you knocked down a couple of walls in your apartment. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And, and so, and so, and so what do you do? So I'm a professor at UH
4: and, um, I study planet formation like Jane and, um, so I, as a professor, you do a mixture of teaching and research and, um, so I've been uh, using Mauna Kea, uh, the radio telescopes in Mauna Kea, and uh, the, as we'll hear, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array ALMA, has, um, there were prototypes of on Kea, that's what got me started in this field. And so as tech, we follow the technology, we're driven by technology. And, and so um, we have been studying these protoplanetary disks from when they were little blobs to now when they're these gorgeous, uh, amazing, images, and um, the technology allows us to do that, and then uh, we need the smart people like
0: yep.
4: Jane, young students, to, to try and figure out
0: what's going on. Great. We'll talk, we'll talk with Jane as well. So, Jane, who are you? What do you do?
3: Uh, so, I am currently a postdoc at University of Michigan. The work that we're going to talk about today was something that I did as part of my PhD thesis at Harvard. Um, so, like Jonathan, I work in the area of observational plant formation. A lot of what I do uses the Atacama Large Millimeter/Submillimeter Array in um, Chile. And actually, Jonathan Williams was the advisor of my PhD advisor.
0: And so, let's Are let's talk about right? the the uh, the specific research that you that you guys were working on. And there's like a great sort of uh, paper that we followed, and I'm sure one of the people on the team uh, reached out to you.
3: Um, Yeah. So we studied this really interesting object named RU Loop. Uh, It's in the lupus star forming region, which is several hundred light years away from us. Um, So what ALMA lets us do is look at the dust and gas emission in protoplanetary disks. And actually this um, project was sort of inspired by the product of two different surveys. Uh, one was called the lupus survey and the other one was called uh, the disk Substructures a high angular resolution project, or D-sharp uh, for short. Um, Jonathan, do you want to talk about the lupus survey for a little bit?
4: Sure. So um, the lupus uh, star-forming region is one of the closest uh, regions where stars and planets are forming. and But it lies in the southern sky, so if you can't see it, um, but it barely comes above the horizon from Maurekeia. So you need to go south, the other side of the Earth, and... Um, so we hadn't been well studied, at least at the wavelengths where we can look at disks and but Alma opened that up for us. And um, one of the first things we did was to basically, you know, like explorers, you just you do a survey first. So we did a survey um, with um, Megan Ansdell, who's, who's on the page that we're going to be talking about. And uh, we basically studied 98 disks and um, We found so we were studying a population of the disks, but there were a lot of bright ones that um, needed more follow-up. Came. And, so, and
0: so, sorry, is it, you're dealing with a bunch of newly forming stars in like a, like a cluster?
4: Yeah, it's a loose collection of stars. This is, this, so they're not tightly clustered together, but they all formed at more or less the same time. And these are about 3 million years old, 1 to 3 million years old
0: right right and so the with alma you're doing sort of a large scale survey like which where did you do your survey first and then how did you actually focus in because i mean the both pictures the large scale pictures of the of the of the stars themselves but also the incredible detail like the blue one versus the red one which i'm going to be i'm showing to, to the audience the two sort of scales of the of the image and how you've got the sort of larger spiral image on the outside and then the actual core of the protoplanetary disk
4: so so the the big survey was it was it was all based on a space telescope survey like right? spitzer space telescope so that kind of mapped the cloud and found there's a, um, a bunch of um young stars that are detectable in their infrared emission we what we did is we then just quickly looked with Alma, each one nine, of these 98 stars, just one, two, three, just went through and a short map, but it wasn't a, it wasn't the detail map, um, so that, but with that, you could then figure out what are the characteristics, and in particular, what are the bright ones that we can then go in to study with much finer detail. So what you're looking at is a, is a very high resolution image of, a, of one of the stars that we that we had first mapped at maybe ten or twenty times that, that resolution, so much more blurry map.
0: Uh, Jane, you know, when you think about the like, just the level of our understanding of of like, again, I'm going to bring this picture up. Um, you know, we up until just a little while ago, we only knew about our own solar system. We're starting to discover these other planetary systems. We had theories about how the planets got where they are and the different kinds of terrestrial planets and and gas giants and so on. What does a survey of this level start to tell us sort of at a, at a larger scale about what's happening, about how these formation processes are going on?
3: Um, so I can answer that for the two different kinds of surveys that that are being done. So like Jonathan, Jonathan does these very big, Jonathan's collaborators do these very big population studies where you just get these very short observations of disks. And there you're learning about the masses and sizes of disks and, and what they're finding that seems to be a little odd is that the masses of these disks are smaller than what you would expect given how much mass we know is in planets. So that raises some questions about our understanding of the timescales of planet formation. And then with these very high resolution surveys um, that produced uh, the nicely ring uh, that we see in D-sharp, we think that those rings come from uh, planet disk interactions. Uh, If that's true, that also implies that planets are forming in different locations from where we would expect them to be. They're, they're, They're forming very far out, which is Weird from a planet formation theory perspective.
0: Sorry, when you say far out, can you give me just sort of an example compared to, say, the you know the number of, number of astronomical units that we have here in the in the solar system.
3: Right. So Jupiter is at about five astronomical mm-hmm. units. Neptune at about thirty. Um, and we're seeing these. Uh, Gaps and rings anywhere from just a few AU out, which is not, which is not unexpected. That's where Jupiter is, all the way out to maybe a couple hundred AU, and wow. that's a little bit more troubling from a planet. Right, more.
0: Planet Nine level.
3: Right, but Planet Nine is much smaller. It's well, what we think it would be smaller. Right.
0: Yeah, um, and so you've got a, a planet that is Jupiter mass, but it is forming that far out. And and are you seeing enough statistical? commonality at this point to be able to say, okay, here's what solar systems tend to look like when they're forming.
3: Actually, what's been really striking is the incredible diversity that we are seeing in these structures. You know, myself and other people working independently have tried to look for correlations with stellar properties, you know, and with exoplanet studies, you see very neat correlations with, um, stellar properties so you would expect them to be them to be reflected in uh, the young planet population as well and right now there doesn't seem to be a lot of obvious relationships Um, but one thing to note is that uh, like Jonathan noted uh, astronomers right now are preferentially looking at very bright sources and that's simply because as as an observer you can get Better quality data right, with the better right. sources right now, um, so that may be introducing some bias in how we're learning about planet formation. That that maybe the, these massive disks are all special, like they're they're all massive for one special reason that wipes out the relationship between um, other stellar properties.
0: And and so you don't think that you're necessarily getting a good representative sample of the kinds of star forming, planet forming disks that you would see, like you're just seeing the big stars right now?
3: Uh, well, the big discs, the big Um,
0: discs, right.
3: Stars, the stars range in mass. Um, so we have reason to believe that our sample is biased. And as an observer, I say the solution to that is to get a lot more data,
0: right? Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because you've got this, like on the one hand, you've got all of the exoplanet researchers, uh, one of which is in our, one of our co hosts. Um, and they are finding 1000s and 1000s of planets and and more and more the question of like, is the solar system normal? The answer is no, no. In fact, we're seeing all kinds of, of variety. But we're seeing, you know, when we look at the locations of Jupiter and, and Saturn, and we look at the locations of Neptune and Uranus, and we know that there was this migration over the solar systems early history, can you start to put these puzzle pieces together now where you can see these disks, see the locations of these gaps where you've got to assume planets are forming, and then you compare and contrast that with where the planets have been discovered? Can you start to see, okay, they form out here, and then they migrate over there? Or do you think we're still too early in this process?
3: Well, one challenge um, is that right now, the techniques used to discover exoplanets by and large are favorable for planets that are very close mm-hmm. to stars. So there's bias there too. Um, and, and I think that's something that could be resolved in part by future uh, observatories uh, that are planned. So for example, something called the Roman space telescope uh, formerly known as WFIRST uh, should be able to detect to get statistics on the prevalence of uh, wide orbit giant planets through a technique called microlensing, um, which is basically mm-hmm. gravitational lensing on, on at very small levels. Um, and uh, so so that'll be important answering the question of whether these apparently very wide orbit planets that, that we're inferring from these uh, disk observations are are present in old solar systems or whether they're migrating inward.
0: It is Uh, interesting to me just how little of the, like of the puzzle, when you think about like the pieces that can be seen, like we've got really good information about very massive planets around very, um, lower mass stars that where they're perfectly aligned with us. And we've also got some great images of, face-on very young stars with their big planetary accretion disks around them, but you don't have all the rest of the pieces. Like, you would love to see surveys of face-on older stars with – planets at various orbits around them. But that's really tricky to do as you said, until you get to some of those newer, newer observatories. So, so what do you think it will take to be able to take you to that next level? What kinds of instruments are you most excited about that are coming? I mean, almost a game changer. Um, Is it some of you know, the ELT? Is it? Is it James Webb? Is it more coronagraphs? What what would you be looking to be able to do more research?
3: uh so there are a couple different things um so Alma would very much like to do an upgrade like (laughs) Alma is great but we can always do better we can try to add more antennas we can try to extend the arrays. you can get even higher and higher resolution and that will that would in principle let us maybe push down to resolutions where we're we have better overlap with exoplanet I, mean, I should also
4: say there's very few images of this quality that Jane has produced. There's maybe thirty or forty discs, yeah, compared to thousands of exoplanets. So we still have a lot of work to do with the current moment.
0: I mean, when um, I saw these pictures, I mean, I I think the the images of the protoplanetary disks around these stars they were some of the most stunning images in astronomy that i think i had seen in in years i you know i made a video about it we freaked out about it on universe today it's such a striking image that you were just staring down into a newly forming solar system and you're seeing an actual picture of it and yet everything else you know for the it poor transiting exoplanet yeah, observers
4: we're finding from this. so yeah we are all the questions you're asking are great questions, but we're really at the start of this so so there's a lot more we can do with the current more with new instruments but uh but you know these questions why are they performing so far out i think this picture shows maybe that there's some things we don't understand like maybe large scale gravitational forces and strong you know th- there's effects there that we hadn't really fully appreciated. So. I would say there's still a lot to do. We haven't even fully understood the data we have at hand yet, <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, but just you, But you're right, you know, we want to upgrade Alma, obviously, ELTs are going to be very important. JWST will be important. And these will near in the next few years. Right,
0: and, and as well, I mean, I think that the limitations with Alma, you're looking at objects that are cooler and you know, that are younger and cooler, that aren't putting out the same kind of energy necessarily as some of the more uh, evolved stars that have blown out their dusty disks. Like, you, because you've got something that is very dusty, it's very it's perfect for Alma. So to, to be able to see the next time frame, I think, would be very interesting as well, to see what these evolve into. Is there sort of, you know, what do you think would be best to be able to take it to the next level? Next time scale, right?
4: I think what you, these are called debris disks. These disks that are after the planets, after the primordial disk has gone and there's still rocks smashing into each other to build up the terrestrial you know, rocky to the planets, they form a lot of debris that uh, we, we can detect. But it's really, really faint, it's hundreds of times fainter than what we're seeing in this image. So again, it's going to require a lot more. The instruments are there to do some of this. Um, it just requires more dedicated time, like hundreds of hours to do in a single source or something like that. And that will happen. But right now, there's so many interesting things to do with ALMA. We have to get yeah. lots. We have still got to do the big, the, the, kind of the initial reconnaissance. And, um, but, you know, these debris disks, we will learn more about those as, as time goes on. And there'll be, there'll be images of, of spectacular this, of debris disks, you know, which are 10 million, 100 million euro disks.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. In the next
4: five, six years. Oh,
0: that's incredible. Because that's that that's that next time frame. And when we think about like a lot sure. of the the pieces that came together to form the planets in the in the solar system, all of that bombardment, all of the like to be able to start to see into those next time frames, I think would be absolutely incredible.
4: The other thing's worth thinking about is that um, over when we look at decade time scales, we may even be able to see time variations in some of these. Maybe some of these structures yeah. may move. Um, and that, that's just maybe something Jane, something that Jane might think about, right? She moves on from, from her young career to,
0: to, uh, old phobie like me. She but was, I mean, was, you see these structures. No. I mean, Jane, you're seeing these, these gaps in the, you know, you're seeing what must be planets carving out discs in these, you know, some, in some cases, perfectly face on, is that the next step to actually see the little planets themselves? And I know it's been seen in some cases already, but...
3: Yeah, so PDS-70 is the only system where planets have been detected directly in the gaps. I have some collaborators who are trying to use similar techniques to go after um, planets in other, other uh, systems. There, there are a lot of really bright young astronomers working on upgrading technologies for direct imaging to search for emission from the planets. Um, and and one hope is that while Alma is not going to detect the planets directly, uh, people are hoping that it'll be useful if you if you stare at a disk for long enough for detecting something called a circumplanetary disk. And that's sort of analogous to this protoplanetary disks, just like stars are surrounded by protoplanetary disks, we expect protoplanets to be Surrounded by their own little disks that will also produce emission at radio wavelengths.
0: Right. Maybe maybe you'll be able to detect the first exomoons before the, uh, you know, just through Alma. which would be amazing.
3: Yeah. There there was a tentative detection uh, reported last year, and the team right now is uh, I think got deeper observations to to verify. I don't know what the stats. of so that yeah. is going to be exciting to see the results of their new observations
0: that's really cool well it's uh, again I, I highly recommend people you know we'll post some links in the show notes and i think half of the fun of this discovery is really just seeing these pictures because you are just you are staring into newly forming planetary uh discs it's it's unbelievable work and i cannot wait to see if people want to follow the work that you're doing uh jane uh where should they go
3: uh well i'm terribly active on social media so they can find out more about my work on my uh, university of michigan website which is a mouthful sites.lsa.umich.edu slash jnhuang. okay
0: awesome and jonathan
3: yeah well
4: same with me i'm not a i'm not a social media guy that's good that's uh,
0: that's for the best
4: um, (laughs) but you can uh if you google my name is very common google jonathan williams hawaii and uh, you'll find my webpage Perfect. There's links to, to uh, my research and
0: so on. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Weekly Space Hangout uh, this week. And and congratulations on the work so far. And I cannot not wait to see what happens next.
3: All right. It was great chatting with all you right. all.
0: Take care.
4: Yeah, thanks.
0: Bye. All right. Let's move on to the, uh, the rest of the news. Everybody has been uh, so quiet this week. Moya, um, you're on my screen. Tell yeah. us about... Uh, super habitable
1: planets <laughs> all right yeah so the the headline of this article was these alien planets may be more habitable for life than our own earth and i saw that and i gave the biggest eye roll because this is this is pretty common right where people claim that a planet is is habitable or that it's more habitable than earth and it always ends up being not true uh, but but this paper was a was a little bit different when i actually dug into it Uh, So the uh, team of astronomers and astrobiologists, at least one of them, is at Washington State University. They searched through 4,500 Kepler objects of interest, or KOIs, and keep in mind that many of those aren't confirmed exoplanets yet, uh, but they are candidates. People think that they might have planets around them. Uh, And after, when they were searching through these KOIs, they had a set of criteria that they were looking for that they think would make a planet more habitable than Earth. Um, and and more habitable is based on uh, different simulations and climate models. And they're they're looking for, for these criteria.
0: So when they talk about more habitable than Earth, because I had, you know, when we posted a link to that, I got a bunch of snarky people going, like, whoa, maybe we should move there. Yeah. Not habitable for us. Right. Yeah. Death for yeah. us, but... So, so what is a definition of super habitable?
1: So they are defining it in terms of biodiversity, um, a planet that is defined as super habitable doesn't have to be habitable for us and it doesn't have to be. Inhabited, so there doesn't have to be life on it, uh, but they are running these simulations to try and figure out which planets could have the the most biodiversity, the most um different types of life forms
0: right right and yeah. and so I mean, I guess I mean when I think of an example, like you go to Costa Rica, there are more trees, different varieties yeah. of trees just in Costa Rica than there is in the rest of North America combined
1: exactly and
0: so So if you want a lot of different trees, that is a place that has a high level of biodiversity. And, you know, there's Mm -hmm. upsides and downsides, I guess, to biodiversity, but mostly biodiversity is better than because then you don't get diseases taking out, wiping out an entire, you know, kind of creature, whatever. And so that's a way that you measure the overall health of an environment is, is there a lot of biodiversity? Um, And so what are some of the individual factors then which can contribute to this This level of biodiversity.
1: Yeah, and this is actually what drew me to this article because it's world building. Essentially, Mm -hmm. is what they were doing. They're they're looking for criteria that would make a a good world uh, for life. And so one of the criteria they have is that um, orange dwarfs or, or K dwarfs are better for life uh, because they live for longer than sun-like stars do. They live for 20 to 70 billion years, um, which means there's more time for life to evolve. And these types of stars, K-type stars, are 50% more common than than the sun. Um, then another criterion they had was that larger worlds would be better. Uh, we've known for a while that planets bigger than about one and a half times the radius of Earth are not likely they're more likely to be gaseous than they are to be rocky right so up to one and a half times the size of earth is actually pretty great because um more size usually means more mass mm-hmm. and so uh more mass means that you have stronger a sh- stronger gravity field uh, so you can hold on to your atmosphere mm-hmm. it means that your core uh if you have a molten core can hold on to its heat longer so you get um a stronger magnetic field and it lasts longer right. and magnetic fields are really important for habitability.
0: Right. And so we look at say Mars compared to the earth, Mars, because it was, you know, has a fraction of the, of the mass of the earth, it cooled down. Maybe it had a needle sphere in the beginning, but now it's long gone. And so if you've got right. a star that is not going to be nasty in the beginning, like a red dwarf, sorry, mm-hmm. an M dwarf, um, but it's going to last for say 70 billion years, not 10. You yeah. got you want a planet that can go the distance as well. And mm-hmm. that's why you want that much more massive planet. Um, but if you, does the higher mass make significantly more gravity? I mean, you're hopefully you're getting a bigger size as well. So it all sort of evens out, right?
1: Yeah, it it does kind of even out. It's It's a little bit stronger Mm -hmm. um probably strong enough that if we went to that planet we would feel it it would suck yeah
0: yeah right
1: you would constantly feel like you would just run a marathon
0: right right (laughs) right but you wouldn't but it wouldn't necessarily stop like you would still have flying creatures you would still have trees you would still have oceans would be no problem yeah Um, and
1: most importantly, it's probably not that hard to escape the gravity well of the planet to have rockets and stuff.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I always pity those poor, I don't know if you've done yeah. any of this in your world building, those poor people that are in the heavier gravity fields and they just can yeah. never leave. Exactly. This is their prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, okay. So we've got, we've got the star, we've got the mass of the planet. What, what yeah. else is going to make for a good planet?
1: So other things they want are warm planets because the tropics, the warmest places here on our world, uh, not the hottest places, but the the most temperate regions have a lot of biodiversity. Uh, they want the land to be broken up. So we don't want any of those super continents like Pangaea because the land in the middle of the continent is so far away from the ocean that it's just too dry. Mm-hmm. So you don't end up with biodiversity there either. Uh, they also talked about wanting moons, um, wanting uh more land uh mm-hmm. more shallow water because there's more biodiversity in shallow waters than in deep oceans so th- those were a few of the things they wanted after going through all of the kois they found 24 right. so from 4500 to 24 uh that d- none of them met all of the criteria which is fine because most of these criteria can't actually be observed like we don't know if how big the continents on, right. on exoplanets yeah. are. Right, yeah, how
0: deep the oceans are, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, so they found 24 candidates, only two of which are actually confirmed exoplanets. All of them are more than 100 light years away, so they're too far for tests to observe, but they're probably within reach for James right. Webb. Um, and
0: I think that's that's the conclusion, which is that if you have 4,500 exoplanets today, by the time James Webb flies, maybe you're going to have 6,000. Mm-hmm. By the time James Webb is finished operating, you may have in the tens of thousands. Where do you start? Because it can only observe at any great detail a fraction of those planets.
1: Right. Yeah. So it's best to focus on the planets that are most likely or that are best suited for life. So these 24 are the ones that we should focus on first, is, is what this paper is saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. Hal McKinney is asking, how common are magnetic fields for planets? Oh, do we know? That's a
1: great question. Most, I mean, we see them in our solar system. Jupiter has a massive yes. magnetic field. Um, do all of the planets have at least some magnetic field?
0: Well, Venus, I mean, Venus and Mars no longer have planetary wide magnetic fields, but they still have like little temporary surface level magnetic fields. Uh, Ganymede has a magnetic field, has a planetary magnetic field, and then that's about it. So, so all really the only place that's habitable that has a magnetic field here is, is earth. Um, Mm -hmm. one, so, so, and we have no, currently we have no method of knowing the magnetic fields on on exosolar planets. However, we talked about this actually, I interviewed Seth Stostak last night. There's a plan to, to put a SETI telescope on the moon, NASA actually has one of its uh, uh, NIAC awards that that is looking at this that you have a little rover that will plop out um, little radio telescopes along the surface of the moon in this great big petal flower shape. And once operational, would be able to detect the interactions between solar flares and planetary magnetospheres, essentially the, the, the radio emissions that come from planets as their magnetospheres are protecting them from solar flares. So perhaps within a decade or so, well, there could be a telescope on the moon capable of analyzing these planets and figuring out which ones have magnetospheres and which ones don't, which is kind of amazing.
1: Is, is that essentially just looking for aurora on? Yeah,
0: other planets? Yeah, looking for auroras on other on exoplanets. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, awesome. So, uh, did this, did this give you some additional ideas for, for world bu- world building?
1: Yeah, yeah I, I think I'm definitely going to have to put an Exolore episode together now set on one of these super habitable planets and see what a biologist thinks of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Brian, what have you got for us?
5: So, uh, this is looking at, um, Gravitational wave signals from merging black holes. So gravitational wave astronomy is still pretty young. We're still trying to figure out how to do it well. Um, We found about a a dozen mergers of high mass objects, whether they're uh, stellar mass black holes or neutron stars. Um, And typically what we see from a signal is what they call a chirp, which is this, you know, as the the two masses are in spiraling, you get this if you converted it to sound, it would be this rising pitch. You get this oscillating oscillating signal that then ends in a spike that then dies off. And so is that if you converted it to sound, it would just be whoop and it would just that chirp is what we hear. And and it's very distinct from that very close, rapidly rotating production of gravitational waves until the two objects merge into a single black hole and it does a little bit of what they call a rain down where it oscillates and then settles to a stable black hole and, and that's what we've observed with all of them and and part of this is that this is very much on, on the limit of noise detection so you have to be able to detect very closely and actually model what the signal should look like within the noise. So you're really on that edge of sensitivity there. So, So this new study looked particularly at what they call asymmetric mergers. So this is where you've got one large mass object like a large black hole and a much smaller black hole. And the reason those are important is because they're asymmetrical, the gravitational waves they produce are asymmetrical. And one of the things that can happen is when they merge and you get that chirp of gravitational waves, that can be off center. And so what would happen is that as they merge, the resulting black hole gets this gravitational wave kick and gets pushed away from, Hmm. from where the two black holes were. And this could actually explain why we see a few galaxies in which they don't have a supermassive black hole. So so it could have been that they were a merged galaxy. And when those two black holes merged, it kicked the black hole out of the galaxy, which is why, you know, the triangular galaxy, for example, doesn't have a supermassive black hole. Right,
0: right. And so and and you don't need to, like, have any kind of complicated three body interaction. You could just have that kick from the two black holes coming together.
5: Right, right. Because the gravitational waves are are, are skewed. Yeah. towards the, the lower end so they're off center if they're about the same mass and they all just the gravitational waves is going kind to of go off evenly
0: I actually have an example that you can do this with which is that you take in a you take a, t- a tape measure like a construction tape measure and you you know you pull the tape measure out and you put it on the ground and you let it bring it in and as it's starting to come in it starts to turn around and then it'll kick itself sideways when it finally comes in and you'll wreck your tape measure but you got a chance yes. to, to experience it. Uh, but so you can see how, how two things coming together through that kind of orbit and rotation can actually kick it sideways, which is kind of amazing.
5: Right. So, so with this particular study looked at it, it looked at these types of mergers and it found that you can actually get more than one chirp. So, so that basically we have the merger and then that little spike of really strong gravitational waves depending on which direction the black hole gets kicked, if it gets kicked towards you, it, it basically creates one or more kind of multiple gravitational wave spikes. And so what you can get is you can get a chirp and then another chirp and maybe another chirp, depending huh. on how it goes. So you can get these this kind of complex ripple pattern that's emitted after the whole thing is merged. So that basically... This thing is merged and it's it's kind of pushing through all of this gravitational noise to create multiple
0: chirps. And so is that what's going on? Is that it's actually like interfering with the gravitational waves that have already been emitted? Like, is it... I mean, I'm sort of like what, you know, when you think about the sources of the chirps, you can understand that for sure they, as these, as they're orbiting around one another and they're just about to collide, that's throwing out all kinds of gravitational waves. And when they do, you get this kick that throws out a gravitational wave, but what, what continue, and maybe as the things rattling back and forth or wobbling or whatever you get, but it sounds like it's a more significant, very specific form of gravitational wave that's coming out of it
5: right i mean the, the gravitational waves are moving at the speed of light so they're moving faster than the black hole but the but the, as the black hole is merging it's sloshing and so so you not only do you get this this kind of kick motion but you're also going to get a, a ring down that isn't symmetrical hmm. and and it's that asymmet- asymmetry that really causes the gravitational waves so like if a black hole was perfectly spherical and not rotating and just oscillating like this, it wouldn't produce any gravitational waves. And so it's that asymmetry that produces this this turbulent region of gravitational waves that we see as multiple chirps.
0: Will any of this give us any insights to what's going on within the event horizon?
5: So that's, that's the real key, because when you get these multiple chirps, and right now... the the, the higher level chirps, we might be able to see a second one if if it happens to be coming directly towards us. But the higher level chirps are just too faint for us to observe with modern observatories. But as we get something like LISA, so you get a space-based gravitational wave detector, you will be able to see these things. And and it will help us understand the event horizon. So one of the real fundamental theories of black holes is something called the No-Hair Theorem and the idea of that is that no matter what you squeeze into a black hole no matter how you squeeze it into a black hole when it settles down it has a the event horizon has a shape that's only dependent upon mass rotation and electric charge and that's it there's only 3 numbers that determine the shape of an event horizon so so we think that's true general relativity says that that is true but alternatives to general relativity say it might not be true. Right.
0: And and, and because and the, the way those
5: multiple chirps happen could tell us whether or not the No Hill theorem is true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean I think I can already predict the the story that we'll be writing on Universe Today, something with the words Einstein right and again in the <laughs> in the title. But at some point he's got he's got to be wrong because yes. we, you can't make quantum mechanics and general relativity come together inside the event horizon. So right. I mean, at some point, somebody has got to have an extension to general relativity that, that allows you to bridge that gap.
5: Right. I mean, basically you've got kind of two outcomes If you keep pushing this. It's either Einstein finally proven wrong
0: or, Quantum theory, fundamentally wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Something's got to give. And so. Something's got to Right. Yeah. And so someone's got to be able to make some kind of observation right in at the very moment. And it's just so incredible. Even when you think about the, the images that were taken with the Event Horizon Telescope. And I think you had done the story for us as well. Just that, that he, he was proven 500 times righter than before. Right. So he's so right. He's beyond right. He's beyond right. Super right. Which just means that it, it's just, and, and the, and yet quantum mechanics is the theory that has, that has like, is like the most accurately predicted, um, scientific theory that it, that has ever been seen. You know, that you can predict that again to decimal places that you run a decimal places to be able to, to make those predictions. So something's got to give. And this is
5: classic Piddler on the Roof. Quantum mechanics, you go, you have a point. General relativity, you also have a point. They can't both have a point. You have a point as well.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. All right. <laughs> um, Beth, what have you got for us?
2: Okay. So uh, my story is on everyone's favorite not planet, Pluto. Um, amazingly, the New Horizons flyby, which only lasted a few minutes, has provided us with enough data to analyze for years so far.
0: Well, partly because and, it's all coming back so slowly
2: <laughs> yeah, right? that that too. Um, so the latest paper to come out covers the ice on the mountains, um, which looks like ice on earth mountains and so everybody went, okay, well, let's kind of look at this and then as they analyzed it, they realized that, um, in particular looking at this one mountain range called, and I'm going to probably butcher this, but Pigafetta Montes, um, they found that the concentrations, um, the ice itself is of course methane ice, it's not water ice, and the concentrations of the methane ice were highest at the higher elevations on these mountains, and then the concentrations were decreasing down downslope um, to the surface, so they've left behind these really bright deposits and and they've done all this you know simulations to kind of figure out how they could have gotten there so the big deal on this is that on earth our atmospheric temperatures decrease in general as we go up um, through the atmosphere so as we get higher up it gets colder and the colder air cools off expands as it keeps moving upward and so we that helps kind of keep the surface a little bit cool too and then when we get some humid winds that come towards the mountains on Earth, the water vapor gets cooled, it condenses, and we get snow. Right. Which having grown up in Colorado, I know way too much about. On Pluto, it doesn't work like this, which is why this whole thing has become a little weird. So there's it, no oceans. There's there's no oceans, but there's there's the atmosphere is really thin. Right. So um For Pluto, the process kind of goes in the opposite direction, So the atmosphere actually warms up as your altitude increases because the methane gas in the atmosphere absorbs the solar radiation and is actually concentrated at higher elevations. So because the atmosphere isn't very thick, it doesn't actually have an impact on the surface temperatures, which stay cold. So Pluto's wind just kind of goes down the mountain slopes and then the like methane ice is at the top and then it's it sort of sits up there but it doesn't make it all the way down so as you get down there's less and less methane ice and it's just um I think at that point it becomes more water ice so um they used some computer modeling to kind of figure this out and and that's when they found that it just it has more gaseous methane at these warmer higher altitudes and then it's really you know hard for that to condense down further so it um it condenses up at the top. <laughs> that's
0: really that's really interesting, and yet looks again looks like snow capped mountains.
2: It looks like snow capped mountains, and they find they found that um, it also works on Pluto's crater rims too. So um, there's this area called Tartarus Dorsa, and they've got these really cool um, bladed terrain around the rim, and it looks like those are methane ice caps. Wow! So that's what's happening there too. So it's, it's kind of cool. And uh, it's a really neat little process. Um, definitely kind of turns, literally sort of turns
1: our process upside down.
0: Right. Right. Um, and Moya put her hand up.
1: <laughs> I didn't know. I've never asked a question before in here. Um, I didn't know the protocol. You're lucky
0: I even noticed. No, no, no you just you yeah. got to jump in there and just start okay. asking and then I'll shut up. That's how this got works. It.
1: Do we know anything about the texture of methane ice? Like, what would it be like to ski down one of these slopes?
2: You know, I'm, I'm not personally sure, but from the comments about the bladed terrain, I'm guessing skiing might not go so well for you. So it sounds like it's it's a, a sharper, more jagged ice structure to it, mm-hmm. um, which would make sense because you're talking methane is CH4, so... Um, probably not as nice and angly as water that all kind of fits together so when you start to get that CH4 going it's probably a little bit more bumpy
0: well you have those those st- structures and I'm forgetting the name of them but they're like spikes of of ice that you get in certain conditions on earth and they think that in fact we're seeing those on we'll be seeing those on Europa and Enceladus so I wonder if it's the same situation that you've got you know, you don't have snow falling, sprinkling down in the same kind of way. You've got perhaps ice forming out of the atmosphere as it's moving up. So it'd be interesting to see what somebody needs to send a lander.
2: So <laughs> many landers! I, I want so many! I want all the landers, and I want an orbiter or two.
0: Yeah, there you go, Zapfen, Zapfan, Just put it in the chat. It's Penitente. Those are the those. So Penitente are these jagged, um, and I'll 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 show a picture of them in the. And so people can see what we're talking about. Um, Yeah. Every time I see any of these kinds of discoveries, I'm just like, well, that's great. And too bad we won't be able to go back and take a look at it for 20 years.
2: Right. I mean, because even if we got something off the ground tomorrow, we'd still have to wait a long time for it to get there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah
2: and it's hard to land on Pluto because you have to go so fast to get there in any reasonable amount of time
0: yeah here I'll show you what these things look like. I don't know if you've if you've seen them um hold on here,
2: I'm apparently wearing Pluto now,
0: yeah you are you can't see yeah, no i, I didn't mean to tell you, but you you are uh ghostly oh, yeah. pluto um now
2: my my the sun is coming directly in through my window now, which has completely destroyed my green yeah. screen effect, so yeah. now now I am the green screen, so that's great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you see, so this, these are penitente and these are on earth. These are in Argentina, but this is what they think it looks like on Europa and Enceladus.
1: Fraser, I've heard of these. Yeah. And and they do, at least here on earth, they do this really cool thing where like sunlight bounces between them. So you actually get pretty warm regions, uh, in between all of these, these ice spikes. Um, Yeah. I don't, I, that probably doesn't happen on Pluto when, when sunlight is not.
0: Well, I, but I mean, the th- I mean, again, we are so far out over our skis as it were. Um, but, you know, what we're, I mean, the thing that's just so amazing about these worlds is just how, like Titan, for example, that the, that the the sand is made of water and the mountains are made of water, but the lakes are made of methane and it rains methane and everything is shifted. And then you go to Pluto and the, and the, the mountains are made of, of water ice and they're thousands of meters high. And the glaciers are ammonia and, and methane ices that shift around on the surface. So um, it's, you know, it's it's pretty fascinating to see very familiar structures show up again and again on on and, other worlds in the solar system. And so I,
2: I looked it up, and those are the Penitentes are what's at uh, Tartarus Dorsa, Tart. Okay, yeah, great. Pluto. So, so it is the same structure.
0: Yeah. So do not, do not, do take not take your skis ski down, those. Ski down that. Yeah. yeah. Unless you want to just be sliced up into, you know, pieces, on on Pluto. Um, but we will talk to Alan Stern about it when, when he's next on the show, which I think is coming up in a couple of weeks. So I'm sure he'll have a lot to say about it. Um, all right, Beth, you're on my screen. So why don't you let people know what uh, what you're working on and where people can find out more about you?
2: So right now uh, I'm working with CosmoQuest on planning our annual hangout a which is our big 36-hour fundraiser. For I'm sure, you sure you you're all going to hear I'm more sure. about
0: this as we get closer, <laughs> but yeah.
2: So um, we're just kind of – we're finishing up the planning of all of that because uh, as we are CosmoQuest, we will probably be planning until the night before. So that's it's just it's just how we roll. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> it's what? Like the 25th?
2: 25th and 26th of this yeah, month. Yes, so that's still, so – well, Oh, a week like and a away. away. No yeah, big deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we got time.
0: Right. Okay. And if, if someone was to follow you on Twitter?
2: Uh, I am at PlanetaryPan
1: pretty much on all the things. So –
0: Awesome. That's where you can find me. Right on. All right, Moya. If people want to find out more, where should they go?
1: Uh, you can go to Twitter or Instagram. My handle is goastromo, and uh, I am trying to focus more on the PhD side of things these days. <laughs> um, so I've I've been doing more research. Good. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. When 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 do you defend?
1: Um, probably in in. March or April at this point, the pandemic pushed me back. Right.
0: Uh, right. But
1: yeah, March or April.
0: Right. So probably in March or April, but also time has no meaning. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We'll, we'll see. I'll let you know when I'm a doctor.
0: Right. Sounds good. So
2: so like March 365th is what you're saying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We will look forward to calling you doctor. Yeah. January. Yeah. Right. Um, well, I, I, I've mentioned this several times before. This show is a doctor factory so uh we've produced so many doctors so it's inevitable
1: yeah but i can't fail
0: you cannot you literally can't fail this is training you just didn't even know you're this is just like defending your thesis right now um brian uh what are you working on and uh where can people find out more
5: uh right now i'm mostly working on stuff for an for the next few days and then i'll probably write another article for universe today okay. Um you can find me on Twitter at Brian Coberline. You can find my website is Briancoberline.com. Basically, if you can spell my name correctly, you can find me.
0: Awesome. Um all right. So uh tomorrow morning, I I I've warned everybody that I do random interviews now on my YouTube channel just to for whatever works for the guest, because I was having a hard time shoehorning them into my time of day. So I let them choose. So tomorrow at 830 Pacific time, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Dirk Schultz Makuch, who is the researcher behind the super habitable planets. So we will get all of the parts where we weren't sure about the answer to. I'll dig into all of those. And I'll bring this all back to uh, a report to Tamoya to afterwards. Um, so that'll be tomorrow at uh, at 830. So come and join me for that on my channel. It's in my calendar, you should be able to find it, but I know it's random and you you're going to forget, but you can watch it afterwards, it'll be in the podcast, so so it should be a good time. All right, I'm going to put everybody on the screen. There we all are. Thank you everybody for joining us this week on the weekly space hangout. We really appreciate your support and just hanging around with us. Thanks to all the people who are asking all the great questions. Again, I I am sorry I can't get to any of them most of them, but it's great to see them in the, in the chat. Thank you to, uh, Nancy Graziano and all of the mods working hard. Thanks to my co-hosts and our special guests this week. And we will see, uh, actually, you know what? You won't see me next week or any of us next week because, uh, I'm not going to be hosting this week. That'll be Pamela. So Pamela will host next week and there'll be a different crew with her. So, uh, see you in two weeks. Thanks everybody.